pray. Lord, uh, this morning, as we produce music that is worship to you and preach your word and perform these acts of service to you, we may be tempted to find ourselves worthy in the work that we're doing for you. And I was reminded by a godly man this week, God is not impressed with us. And so, turn away our hearts from the desire to do things for any other motivation other than the exaltation and the glory that you get, Father, through Jesus Christ. May Christ be exalted. May his word be clear. May your spirit move mightily and powerfully in our minds as you transform our thoughts into Christ-likeness. We trust your word, and Psalm 37.5 says, we commit ourselves to your word and trust in you, you will act. And so we trust that as we go to your word, you will act in a mighty way that changes us into the likeness of Jesus. Lord, what is the purpose of our lives if it's not Christ? And so do a, do a work in your people this morning. Not a work that Pastor Mark does or a work that Lon does or a work that Pastor Christian does or a work that Brian does. Let it be a work of your spirit in all of us so we would grow together in unity like Christ so that we may be the body. So encourage us this morning, challenge us, rip away our flesh, destroy our sin, and build in us and grow in us the righteousness of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to think for a second about when I say the word suffering, like what comes to mind? Think, someone say pain? Yeah, pain. When, when I say suffering, I think I don't know about you, I can speak for myself. My, my mind goes immediately to, um, you guys know what DC Talk is, right? Uh, if you don't, shame on you. Um, DC Talk is a you know, Christian rock, rap band, whatever, from, really from the 90s. Toby Mac is like one of the lead singers of it. Um, but uh, they put out a book years ago when I was like a teenager it's sort of like, um, just like the voice of the martyrs type of stories. Um, I think it was called Jesus Freaks, because they had come out with a song called Jesus Freak. And it was story after story after story of these horrible, painfully unbelievable sufferings that people endured for the name of Jesus Christ. 
They were being burned at stakes. There are descriptions of the way that people were tortured and killed in that book that I probably, I'm not going to share with you because there's children in the room. They were so gruesome and so terrifying. And so when when I hear suffering and Christians got to suffer, and that's part of the Christian calling, my brain goes to, oh, I have to burn at a stake or I have to go through some torturous, terrible circumstance. The reality is, I want to encourage you and say, that's probably not going to be true for you. But I would also be wrong if I didn't prepare you for that. And so we have to kind of write, kind of correct our, our perception of what suffering is, especially in our own, in like our current culture and your specific circumstance and situation in your life. Because my wife and I are having this conversation about suffering. And she said, I know that we're supposed to like think that way, but the thought of like my children dying just so I can be more like Christ is so hard kind of thing. I said, well, first of all, that's probably not our next step in hardship. However, it might be. Like, we don't know. And so I shared with my wife some examples of individuals in our church. Godly, growing, Christ-like women specifically, because my wife's a woman and I was trying to relate to her. So give her examples of actual women in our church, some of you sitting here who have been through and or are going through suffering in your life right now. Suffering that is a product or because of your righteousness. And it kind of reshaped our view of what suffering is. And so we need to kind of get a better grasp on this idea of suffering, that it is not always so extreme. Suffering has a variety of different forms. And that the whole purpose of the New Testament, if you look at the New Testament, I want you to take just a second and think about what two words are most often and best describe Christian living in the New Testament. What two words? And you can't use Jesus because that's a given. (laughs) Jesus is the best word for the New Testament Christian, Christ-likeness. But what two words best describe Christian living in the New Testament? And most often, those two words, sacrifice and suffering. You look at the New Testament believers and how many of them Go to church every Sunday. Have mansions. No hardships. Easy life. No challenges. No struggle. Give up nothing. Keep it all for themselves. That that kind of lifestyle just doesn't exist in Scripture. When you look at every faithful believer in the New Testament... What happens to them? They die. They give up their life for Christ and they either suffer in their sacrifice or they sacrifice to the point of great suffering even unto death. And that is the constant reminder and call in the Christian life. 
And, and so the, we have to kind of reshape the way we think about what Christianity is, what being a believer really is. It is a call to sacrifice. It is not a call to suffer. It is a call to sacrifice. And in sacrifice comes the promise of hardship. And so I think that scares us as believers because we live in a culture that is very comfortable. And I am not suggesting that if you don't have a suffering or you're, or you're comfortable in life, that you're not a godly person. And I'm not telling you that you have to go find suffering. What scripture calls us to is sacrifice. And what comes after sacrifice could be a myriad of things. And what the Bible teaches us is the mind of Christ that we get when we are in the word and filled with the spirit. And that mind of Christ that grows in us prepares us spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and physically to be ready to sacrifice and then also to be ready to endure the hardship that comes with that sacrifice. I could tell you the ways in which I'm suffering in life, and I think most of you would probably look at me and go, Pastor Mark doesn't look like he's suffering that much. I have a lot of sufferings in life that come from what God is doing in my heart and in my mind and in my life. But notice that those sufferings aren't so great that I'm up here going, oh, my whole family died and my house collapsed and I have boils all over my body and my wife said, curse God and die. Sound familiar? That was Job's life. You don't see those sufferings in my life. I don't want those sufferings. But the more God works me and moves me into sacrificial living, the more he starts to strip away my flesh and starts to pull and peel back the layers of my spiritual life and my selfish human mind that wants comfort in the pain and in the sacrifice. And as he strips away my fleshly desire for comfort, what is revealed is Christ. And Christ says to me, I'm your comfort. And I will take from you, Mark, until you see that I am your only peace, your only joy, and your only comfort. And you will endure, like I did, hardship and suffering for my name's sake. And that is why those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted because Christ was. And so we need to kind of reform and reshape our perspective on sacrifice and suffering so that we can understand what Paul is talking about in Colossians chapter 3. And he gives us some roles. And in these roles, we've got these very practical things like how to be a good wife and how to be a good husband and how to be a good child and how to be a good father and how to be a good slave. Very practical. And then he moves us from that context about those specific roles in our lives and then transfers the, the the text kind of transfers us into a different thought process like a different mentality different perspective which is really about who we're actually serving in those roles 
and what that service might actually look like if you're a believer. And he takes it from practical to actually theological and then builds in us a theology for suffering. And it's really a beautiful expression of God's plan for every one of you as you grow in Christ. And the product is joy, and the product is God's glory, and the product is your pleasure and satisfaction and dependence on God. So we get to verse 18 through 22, and Paul writes, Colossians 3, 18, Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. So Paul addresses these very important human-to-human relationships with a greater purpose in mind that just how we, more important than just how we treat each other. And obviously we're commanded in Scripture by Christ to love one another, right? To, to love your neighbor and, and even to love your enemy. So how we relate to each other, this human-to-human relationship is important. Other people are our focus. We look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, and Paul writes, consider others more important than yourself. You can see in that text that other people are the focus. But what Paul is doing here is he's saying, yes, other people are the focus, but there's a deeper, greater, and even better focus than other people. And if you want to love other people well, there is something else or someone else who should be your primary focus, not, not other people. And so Paul uses this truth to point us to a better and more important truth that will strengthen how well we actually treat other people. And that better truth is that you are not serving others. You are not loving others. You are not submitting to others. You are not sacrificing to others. You are serving, sacrificing, submitting, and obeying Christ. Other people are not our priority. Other people being a priority in your life is a product of Jesus being the priority in your life. Matthew 6, when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and the rest of these things will be added to you. He's talking about physical, earthly needs that you have in this life. But ultimately what he's saying is if you prioritize God first, he will take care of everything else in your life. It's kind of just like this, you know, this uh, priority pyramid. God goes at the top and everything that happens in life gets filtered through God being your greatest love, desire, and priority. He will be the impact in your marriage and in your parenting and you as a child and how you relate to your parents and with your peers and how you interact with the church and how you serve the church and how you sacrifice, how often you sacrifice, the degree to which you sacrifice and how you handle the product of sacrifice which will be suffering. All of that is a product of prioritizing God first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and the rest of these things I will take care of. My wife and I, I've said this many times before, my wife and I, before we even started courting each other, before we, we talked on the phone, we knew we liked each other, and we prayed together before we even officially were courting each other. And one of the things that we said on the phone was, 
Jesus first. You will always be second. I will always be second place to Christ for my wife. My wife will be always second place for me to Jesus. And then I prayed. And what she told me years later is she whispered in the phone as I was praying, I love you. (laughs) So, young men, pray with your women. All right. Notice, though, that this wife and husband relationship, they have different commands in how they relate to each other. The wife, she submits to her husband. And the husband is to love his wife with gentleness, okay, or without um, being harsh to them. And you can put a lot of different words in there for not being harsh. Gracious, loving, kind, patient. Uh, You could list the fruit of the Spirit as evident, which would be the opposite of harsh. So being gentle and patient, understanding. Peter says in 1 Peter 3 that to live with your wives in an understanding way. So there's no hierarchy of value here, right? There's no, like, husbands are up here and and wives are down here because they need to submit to their husbands because the husbands are better or greater. It's not at all the perception or the, the teaching of Scripture that women are lesser than men in any way. They're not lesser in value. They're not lesser in worth. They're not even lesser in function and capability, It's not about value. It's not about hierarchy, who's greater or better. In Christ, we are equal and united. The first will be last and the last will be first. When Jesus says that, he's talking about, I don't care if it's the guy who is on the cross with Jesus who did zero ministry in his life. He believed in Jesus, went to heaven, and he was with Christ. And you know how, and I spend my entire life preaching the gospel. So when I get to heaven, I'm going to look at that guy and go, I get the better mansion buddy i spent my life devoted to the gospel all you did was say i believe and went to heaven that's not fair i should be ranked higher than you and jesus says the first will be last and last will be first there is no hierarchy because what we have is christ and christ is fully in me and fully in you and so my value before the father isn't well i did this my value before the father is jesus and that's it and whether i spent my life in ministry or uh, someone on their deathbed confesses and believes in jesus and they did zero ministry in their life they are going to bring to the father the same thing that i bring to the father and it is nothing but jesus so there's no difference in value between the husband and wife or worth. It is not about value. It is about roles. It's that God has ordained particular roles for husbands and wives. For husbands, just like Christ, you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands just as husbands should submit, submit to Christ And just as Christ submits to the Father, is Christ, is Jesus, any less God than God the Father? Not at all. In fact, earlier in in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, for in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Chapter 2, verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. There is nothing about Jesus that lacks God the Father. We'll never enter the presence of Christ and go, you know, you're pretty great, but like, man, where's God? I want the whole picture, Jesus. And Jesus repeats over and over in his ministry, if you have me, you have the Father. If you have the Father, you have me. You lack nothing about the Father in me. Christ is all we need. And so when you look at Jesus' life, doesn't he, from our human eyeballs and our human minds, don't we look at Jesus and go, he's less than the Father. 
And Jesus goes, no, I'm not. And God the Father confesses, no, he's not. So why does Jesus have to submit? Because that's his ordained role. So you look at a wife and a husband, you go, well, then why does a wife have to submit to her husband? Because that's what God has assigned for women. And men, you can't just go, yeah, well, I get to lead. Because your job is to submit to Christ. And that's the whole reason, our whole function about husbands loving their wives well. If Paul commands here, husband loves, husbands, love your wife in gentleness. You can't love your wife well if you don't love Christ well. That is the whole purpose. If you want to love your wife well, you have to put Christ first and love him well. He will teach you how to love your wife. And I can tell you this, you're not going to grow in your love for Jesus unless you're in the word. That is a, that is a fact. You will not grow in Christ-likeness if you are not in the word. And if you're in the word, the mind of Christ will grow in you. You will love him greater. You will love him more. And in his word, he will teach you how to love your wife well. And then as your wife feels loved by you, she will love to submit to you because it will not be like an MMA match where you jump into the octagon with your wife and you punch her in the face and you put her in a headlock and you say, Submit! Submit! Tap out! That's not submission. That's brutality. And we think of submission as that forceful kind of work, but genuine biblical submission is a joy to the one who loves you well. And what Paul will eventually get to here is, what if they don't love you well? We'll get to that in a second. So, husbands love your wives. Wives submit to your husbands. Not because your husband's great. Not, not because your wife deserves your love. But because Christ demands it. And because that's what Christ loves. And as you love both of you, as you love him more, your submission and your love for one another will grow exponentially. Children have a distinct role as well, which is submission that is expressed in obedience to their parents. And as children grow and mature naturally and spiritually, God has assigned all children years of learning this awesome trait that is vital to our spiritual maturity, and that is obedience. Why is it important to teach your children obedience? I think most of us might have a good biblical answer, but at the heart of hearts and in our, really in our minds, why do we want our children to obey? Because we don't want to go in public, have our children act like fools, and people go, you're a bad parent. That is totally selfish. That your motivation, and I'm saying it because I feel that too, you guys. Like, I'm in that boat with you. I am completely and totally motivated by my ego that says, I don't want people to think my children are bad because then I, that means they'll think I'm a bad parent. And to be honest, that's a huge weight for me because the qualification for eldership is that your children are submissive to you. So I walk around thinking, you better behave, you better behave, you better behave, because if you don't behave and someone sees your lack of submission to me, then I'm disqualified from being a pastor at this church. And so what I want to do in my flesh is like grab my children and be like, do this exactly like I do it. Hey, stay. You, didn't, you didn't do what I told you to do. And that's why Paul goes on in verse 21 and says, fathers, do not provoke your children. Because in Ephesians, he says, don't be angry with them. Don't provoke them to anger. Don't express your anger upon them lest they become discouraged. Have you ever yelled at your child and they go, yeah, dad? No. What do they do? They hang their head 
and they feel terrible, and they're covered in shame. You know whose game is shame? Satan. Conviction is different because conviction comes with peace and love and patience and gentleness and understanding. Yesterday, my son came into the house very upset. And God, by the grace of God, he gave me a moment where I was not reactive to his emotion and I was able to be calm. And I just put my hands on his shoulder and I just said, who's in control of your feelings? He's like, I am. And like in three seconds, he went from to peace. And I even said to him, I said, did I run around chasing you angry and mad because you reacted that way? You were mistreated, and in your mistreatment, you overreacted. And now I'm bringing you down to peace. And I even said to him, do you notice how my calmness is bringing you to calmness? That's how you're supposed to respond to how to the person that mistreated you. And so by the grace of God, I get to experience for a moment, because there have been plenty of times where in those moments, I'm the raging father. And what I got to see yesterday was this great product of a promise from God that the children will respond righteously to your righteousness. And so fathers, be gentle. Children, be obedient as a form of expressing your obedience to the Lord. Fathers, be gentle and patient with your children as a form of being like and expressing and revealing who God the Father is to them. And then we've got slaves, like children, are in a submissive role as well, which demands their obedience to their master. And Paul doesn't tell believing slaves to get out of their slavery. Now in 1 Corinthians 7.21, he does say, if there's an opportunity for you to be free, you can take it. But Paul's talking about a righteous opportunity. He's not talking about using your spiritual freedom to gain earthly freedoms because that might be God's lot for you that you don't get that freedom. Meaning your freedom in Christ may not necessarily equal your freedom in other ways. So the reality is that in all these roles, we are all bound to someone, slaves to their masters, children to their parents, wives to their husbands, husbands to the Lord. All of these relationships have other people in mind and how we treat those people is important. But Paul is using those relationships and how we treat others in those relationships to draw us to a better truth. And we... And that better truth is that we are acting not toward each other, but toward the Lord. And in fulfilling our roles unto the Lord, we will fulfill our roles toward each other in righteousness and godliness. But there's like this, there's like this hanging question. Because when you look at verse 22, and, and Paul says, as we do these roles, as wives submit and husbands love and children obey and fathers don't provoke and slaves obey, he says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You see that the 
the preeminence of Christ in your life coming out of that text. Yes, how you relate to others matters, but it's not them whom you're serving. It's not your husband you're submitting to. It's not your wife who you're loving. It's not your parents whom you're obeying. It's not your children that you're patient with and gentle with. It's not your master that you're obeying. It is Christ. How you treat others is how you are treating Christ. That's a huge reality to absorb. How you are treating others is how you are treating Jesus. If those others are believers, and even if they're not, it's still a reflection of how you're treating Christ. It's at least a reflection of how, how Christ is working and actively in you. Because if you treat an unbeliever like garbage, then you're not expressing the likeness of Christ. And if you're treating a brother or sister in Christ like garbage, then not only are you not expressing Christ, but you are mistreating Christ because we are his body. Would you go up to Jesus and look him in the face and say, Jesus, I love you. And then pick up a bat and hit him in the arm as hard as you can. Say, but I hate your arm. No one would do that. We wouldn't even, the, the thought of that sounds like blasphemy. Because it is. And yet we treat the body that way. We treat each other that way. We grumble and we complain, we fight and we argue, we're disunited, we're dysfunctional, crabby towards each other, we lack patience with one another, we are not long-suffering or enduring to one another's sin, we don't pray for each other, we, we gossip about each other. That's how we're treating the body of Jesus. We seem to think when we think about the body of Christ that Christ is in heaven and the body's here on earth and, and you know, I'm, how I treat the body is really about how I'm treating other people. We kind of dissociate the mind of Christ, the thoughts of Christ, Christ himself from the reflection of Christ, which is you. And we kind of create this dissociation so I can treat these people who are sinners and aren't behaving right or at least they're not behaving the way I think they should behave. And we treat them poorly because we've, we've separated them from Christ. And Scripture never paints that picture, but repeats over and over and over that how important it is to treat each other well, not because that person is vital, but because they are in Christ, and Christ is all that matters. And so how we treat each other is how we're treating Christ. We need to stop the dissociation. And bring the head, bring the head, whom is Christ, back into the picture and put him back onto the body and see the whole scope of who Christ is, that we are the completion of him. That he has completed his work in us. And that we as the body are the reflection of Christ on earth. So how we treat each other is how we are treating Christ. Amen. And so there's, these, there's a question that's left in this text. Because we're told here in these roles how to behave, how to treat one another. But, but there's a, an unexpressed question that is not explicitly stated, but is implied. So it's implicitly stated because of how Paul continues in the text. And here's the question that's essentially asked without being asked. What if the other person in this relationship isn't fulfilling their role? What if my husband doesn't love me well? Do I still have to submit? What if my wife doesn't submit? Do I still have to love her well? 
What if my children are crazy and out of control? Do I still have to be gentle and patient and gracious with them? What if my parents are mean to me and they don't understand me and they don't listen to me and they just push me around? Do I still have to obey them? What if my master beats me and treats me like a dog? Do I still have to obey them? And Paul's answer is yes. And here's why. After giving each of these roles their commands to submit and sacrifice and to obey, he points those things in a direction that is not other people, but rather is the Lord, which is the text I just read for you, and I'll read it again. Verses 22 through 24. As we fulfill these roles, we do them not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as a reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Wives are not primarily submitting to their husbands. They are submitting to the Lord, and in doing so, they righteously submit to their husbands. Husbands are not primarily loving their wives. They are loving and sacrificing to the Lord, and in doing so, they are loving and sacrificing for their wives. Fathers being patient with their children is their service to the Lord, not to the children. But the benefactors of that service is the children. Children obey the Lord, and in doing so, they please God and their parents. And slaves... Obeying their masters has nothing to do, nothing to do with how those masters are treating them, but has everything to do with how they respond, and the response is to be as to the Lord. And the point is that when you fulfill your role, you are doing so as you would do if that other person were Christ himself. Because if that other person is a believer and they are a part of the body, and how we treat them is how we treat Christ. And if, if they're not a believer, we're still commanded to fulfill these roles. Because you look at the way Jesus lived his life. And Jesus' aim was to please the Father. And as he interacted with unbelievers, even those who mistreated them, one of two things happened. Those people got saved. Or they killed him. And he is our example. We'll get to his example in a minute. I can tell you this. From years of experience in doing counseling, I've been a pastor for 15 years. I've been in ministry for like 17 years. Um, in all my years of counseling and pastoral ministry, I can tell you that what I've seen in marriages and families and other relationships is that everyone is joyfully and happily okay with fulfilling their God-given role as long as the other person is doing what they're supposed to do. It's not hard to submit to your husband when he is abundantly in love with you and treats you well. It's not hard to love your wife well when she joyfully submits. It's not hard to obey your parents when they are righteous and godly and patient with you. It's not hard to not provoke your children when they are peaceful and gentle and quiet. That's easy. Jesus even talks about them and says, well, yeah, anyone can do that. And then he goes on to say, but how do you respond when things don't go your way? That's the mark of Christ-likeness. 
In my experience, everything's fine and dandy until someone starts mistreating someone else. And once that person mistreats them, it's gloves off and suddenly we lose sight of the commands that we are given to fulfill our roles. And yet Paul gives us no disclaimers here, no caveats about about things like, wives, submit to your husband unless he's a jerk, then you don't have to listen to him. Husbands, love your wives unless she cheats on you, then you don't have to love her. Have you read Hosea? Gomer? His wife Gomer, God's like Mary Gomer. Gomer is an adulterous person, an adulterous woman, leaves Hosea, and God says, go get her. Hosea's like, oh, come on, man. God's like, that's how I feel, dude. That's the whole point, is to show Hosea what it feels like to be God, to be adulterated by his people. And what is God's character as the husband to his people Israel and now, his, now Christ as the husband to his bride, the church? What is God's role? Continually, endlessly, forever, without stopping, enduring your wickedness toward him. If he is not long-suffering, we are doomed. If he is not patient and kind in our sin, we are doomed. And, and, and we are commanded to be like Christ, to be those who endure. So wives and husbands, regardless of how your spouse treats you, this is your role. There's no caveat or disclaimer that says, children, obey your parents unless they don't understand you, then do what you want. Slaves, obey your masters unless they beat you because that's not fair and that's not just. And it's not, God doesn't want you to be mistreated, so, so you, you fight back. It's not in Scripture. In fact, Scripture commands the exact opposite, that there is more glory in you enduring mistreatment. 1 Peter 2 18. It's not on the PowerPoint, so you can just flip to it. 1 Peter 2, 18. Listen to this. 18 through 23. Servants. So we've got to, the context here is like submitting to authority. And you've got another example, just like we read in Colossians, where there's slaves and masters. And so... This idea of submitting, obeying, and sacrificial living towards others is expressed here in verse 18. And then he goes on to tell us what it should look like. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. If you have an unjust master who mistreats you, you are still subject to your master with all respect. Verse 19, For this is a gracious thing, a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And that is why I brought up suffering at the beginning. Because if you are a godly woman and your husband is not saved and you are enduring a lifetime of having to live in righteousness in the presence and in the home and in the family with a man who does not love Jesus, that is suffering. And it is a gracious thing that when mindful of God, that woman endures sorrowfully while suffering unjustly. 
while she still fulfills her role to submit to her husband. Verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten, you endure it? So what he's saying is, good for you, you endured sin that was a product, or you endured suffering that was a product of your own doing. Like, you commit a crime and then you suffer the punishment for that crime. And what, what Peter's saying is, yeah, well, everyone has to endure that. That's not special. And he goes on, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And later in chapter 3, verse 17, Peter takes it a step further to kind of encapsulate this entire reality. And he says, for it is better that you suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. That's what he's expressing here. If you suffer for doing evil, that's what you deserve. If you suffer for doing good, that's not what you deserve for doing good, but what it is is an expression of what you really do deserve, which is what? Hell. And God's not giving it to you because you deserve hell. That's not what it is. He's not saying, well, you deserve hell, so I'm going to give you just a taste of it in this life. That's not the point. The point is that you deserve hell, so from our perspective, anything less than hell should be a joy for us, which is why James says, count it all joy, brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Because if, you're gonna, if I'm going to suffer in this life, I should be going, ha <laughs> at least it's not hell. What a joy that this suffering leads to glory, not hell. It's a, we have to change our mentality. We do not perceive the Christian life good enough. And, and I don't perceive the I'm the one preaching this, and I don't perceive this well enough. And Paul, or I'm sorry, Peter goes on in verse 21. He says, for, okay, hold on. Just listen for a second. I just told you that in fulfilling all of these roles, regardless of how you're treated, you still are commanded to fulfill these roles. If you've got a terrible husband or a terrible wife or an unbelieving husband or an unbelieving wife, and just because they're unbelieving doesn't necessarily mean they're terrible. I'm not saying that. But maybe you have a, a, a terrible marriage, a difficult marriage, a challenging marriage, a difficult spouse, difficult children, or you're a difficult parent, or you have a difficult relationship with anybody in your life, whether it's someone in church, or it's your boss, or it's employees, or it's your coworkers, or it's the people at the grocery store, or it's the gas attendant, or it's someone in our church... You still have this Christ-like role to fulfill. And verse 21 says this, For to this, hold on, what's this? This is in verse 19 and 20, which is, It is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And he ends verse 20 with the same thing. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Suffering unjustly while you still fulfill your role. That's the this. So for to this, you have been called. Because, here's why, because Christ also suffered for you. Why do we have to suffer unjustly in the Christian life and all of these roles and still fulfill my role despite being mistreated the entire time? And Peter's answer is because that's what Christ did. And you are supposed to be like Christ. And he ends verse 21 like this, leaving you an example. 
Christ lived that life so that you could see how to live that life righteously. And he goes on, so that you might follow in his steps. That means we are to follow in the steps of Christ, which is sacrificing for others. My wife mistreats me every day. She cusses me out. She calls me names. She says I'm stupid. She commands me. She doesn't submit to a word I say. I have no relationship with her. We have no intimacy. Emotionally, we have no intimacy. Physically, I hate my marriage. I do not love my wife. I don't feel a reason to love her well, and she doesn't submit to me at all. I'm just going to mistreat her. And what we're told here is that's not how Christ treats the bride who treats him that way. Because we do treat him that way. What did Jesus do instead? Verse 22, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Did he stop sacrificing for his bride when his bride treats him like garbage? No. Verse 24, instead, he fulfilled his role and sacrificed. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. That's the example. No matter how you're treated, your calling in life is to endure as you continue to fulfill your role. Your wife, who hates you and treats you like garbage, needs Jesus more than anyone in your life. And she's only going to get it from you. And she's only going to get Jesus from you as you fulfill your role. Your unbelieving husband who treats you like trash needs nothing but Christ. And the only way he's going to get Christ from you is if you fulfill your godly, womanly, wifely responsibility, which is to submit to your husband, which will be really hard. Because your flesh wants what the curse has promised, which is to take over the family. And I've seen it a million times with women who are godly women and love their husbands and try to submit to them as much as they can, but they are the spiritual leaders in the home because they know the Bible and they know Jesus and the husband doesn't. And the woman takes the leadership role in the family because there's an empty slot that needs to be filled and she's a godly woman, so she fills it. And what happens to the husband? Does the husband feel an urgency to step up for his family? Why would he? His role is filled. He's not going to get saved by the wife taking a role she's not supposed to fill. The husband will get saved, according to 1 Peter 3, by the gentleness and quietness of a peaceful woman who fills her submissive role to her husband so that the husband can see that the wife is in need of a godly leader and he knows there's an empty slot called leadership in my family that needs to be filled and I'm the one who needs to fill it because my wife continues to submit to me and she needs better guidance than what I've been giving her and I've treated her like garbage for years and she still submits to me. Wow, that's what Christ looks like? 
Yes, that's exactly what Christ looks like. He suffered death on the cross for something he never did. That wife is being mistreated for being a godly woman. She's suffering for something she never did. And in submitting to her husband, what does she show her husband? Jesus. The sacrificial, enduring love of Christ. So what Paul tells us in verses 22, so we're back in Colossians 3. And what Paul tells us in verses 22 through 24 is that other people aren't the focus. I know I'm talking about your husband, your wife, your children, or your parents. They aren't the focus. Christ is. You are serving the Lord, not others, because Christ doesn't change, ever. Your husband can change. Your children can change. One day they treat you well. The next day they treat you poorly. So that, that can't mean that today my, hus- my husband treats me well, so I'm going to submit. Tomorrow my husband treats me poorly, so I'm not going to submit. Your life would be a terrible roller coaster. That's not biblical. Instead, if, if Christ is the priority, if Jesus is the one whom we're serving, if he's the focus, if it's not others whom we are submitting and loving and sacrificing to and serving and giving to if he's not the one then we are following people who are all over the place we're following people who are great and then terrible and great and then terrible and great and then terrible so our response to them is going to be great and then terrible and then great and then terrible instead of consistent if christ is whom we're serving if christ is the one we're sacrificing to if christ is the one we're obeying if jesus is the one we're submitting to and not our spouse or our children or others if christ is the one whom our eyes are fixed on and whom we're following and whom we're submitting to and obeying he never changes hebrews 13 8 jesus Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, meaning regardless of how other people treat me, if I am treating everybody like Christ, then I am not wavered or washed ashore by being mistreated. The only way you can fulfill these commands to properly live out these roles in your life is if Christ is your focus. The only way to fulfill these commands and live in your role the way God commands is if Jesus is the one whom you're submitting to. Jesus is the one whom you're loving. Jesus is the one you're not provoking. Jesus is the one you're obeying. That's the only way that you will fulfill these roles because he doesn't change. Others will change because they will mistreat you. And the command here is don't worry about how they treat you. Serve Christ And in serving Christ, you will serve them well and consistently, faithfully to Christ. And ultimately, this means that a significant part of the Christian life will be you having to fulfill what God commands in the face of opposition or in the face of being mistreated. I have had way too many conversations with believers, and I myself have done this too, who complain about how someone did them wrong. And it's never even a big deal. It's always so petty. We're so fragile. We're so, we're, we're, we're just so weak. We're so simple. We're so, we're so broken. That the tiniest little mistreatments, the tiniest, once well, someone gives us just a funny look and we're like, oh, they gave me a funny look. We complain about everything. And then we turn around and we we got to get this complaint off our chest, so I'm going to go tell someone else about it. And then we gossip. 
It's so arrogant. It's so foolish. It's so not like Christ. And it means that person is your focus, not Christ. Instead, Jesus tells us how to live in John 15, 18 through 20. He tells us this is going to happen, you guys. This is, this is bound to happen. If you're going to live a Christ-like life, if you're going to follow me, this is your life. John 15, 18 through 20. If the world hates you, know that it hated me first. It hated me before it hated you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. When we grumble, whine, and complain about being mistreated, we are really saying that we are greater than Jesus. Do you even understand the, the significance of his statement there? I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. When we complain, unlike Christ did, we're saying, I'm greater than Jesus because he suffered and I shouldn't have to, so I'm greater than him. And he's saying, no, I'm the master, you're the servant. I suffered, so you will also. And when you say you don't have to suffer, you move yourself up here. Because now suddenly you're greater than the master. Oh, you're the master of your life is essentially what we're saying. When we whine and complain and, and don't respond biblically in Christ like when we're mistreated. Because Christ is the example of how to respond when mistreated. And how did Christ respond in the face of Pilate? Silence. He looked at Pilate and he said, he looked at the Jews. He looked at the Romans with their spears as he hung on the cross. He could have looked at him and said, you know, I'm better than this. Snap his fingers. It's all said and done. They all just die. They all just collapse. Or he turns them into flies. I don't know, whatever. Like, he can do whatever he wants if he wanted to. Disobey the Father's will. Get off the cross. But what does he do instead? He endures. Why? Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy that was set before him, he endures the cross. And he is our example. You will be treated the same. How did the apostles, how did the, all the apostles' lives end? Did they all retire at the age of 65? Buy a vacation home? A couple of boats and some four-wheelers and live on some luxury island and go, man, following Jesus is sweet. Yeah. Because I watch preachers on television telling you that. And then you would all go, yeah, those, those TV preachers, those guys are crazy. I don't, I don't, I don't follow that. Anyways, we're going to go buy a second boat. See you later. You know, like, like we, we, we kind of live in that mentality. I'm not telling you you can't have possessions, okay? That's not what this is about. My point is, that if you think that the Christian life is going to be luxurious, then you haven't read James chapter 5, where James literally warns the people. He says to the rich people, you have lived a luxurious and self-indulgent life, and your end will not be good. Because if you're going to follow Christ, which means you're going to sacrifice as much as you possibly can in this life for the sake of Jesus, it will cost you. Like it costs Christ. If we adopt this Christ-like mentality that my obedience to God and fulfilling my role in my life is my priority, no matter how I'm treated, then I am being more like Christ. So essentially, what Paul is saying 
is that the victory we have in Christ, we use our freedom in that victory to give up our freedom. Like you look at 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10, there's this whole, Paul's this long explanation on Christian freedom, the liberty that we have in Christ. And you know what Paul's best example of the use of your freedom is? Because he gives us different ways in which we can use our freedom. Like I'm not restricted by the law anymore. So I've got this Christ-like freedom in my victory in Jesus to use my freedom in a lot of ways that scripture might not be clear about. Is it okay to have a drink? To have a beer? Bible doesn't say you can't have a glass of wine. In fact, Paul even recommends it if your stomach's not feeling well. Is it okay to have a glass of wine or drink a beer? It's not unbiblical. Is it a sin to get drunk? Yes, that one's clear, explicitly clear. So there's a line you can cross. Can I have one beer? Maybe two. And then Paul kind of says it's up to your conscience in Christ and the Holy Spirit in you to determine what's wise and not wise. And then Paul kind of says, so you can kind of do this, and you can kind of do that, and you can kind of do this. And then we're all just kind of looking at it going, oh, I can get away with a lot of things here. And then Paul's final, his conclusion in all that is that he says, the best use of your freedom in Christ is to give up your freedom. That's the best use. To use your freedom, to sacrifice your freedom for the sake of someone else. I mean, I have the freedom to drink a beer in front of any one of you. Biblically, I have the freedom to bring a beer right here and drink it at the pulpit. It's not in the Bible, so say I can't. I'm not getting drunk. I could do that and it wouldn't be sin. Unless you were totally offended and it caused you to sin. In which case, now, now I have sinned and for your sake, I won't do that. I'm giving up my freedom for yours. That's the best use. I'm giving up my freedom to complain about being mistreated so that I can love those who mistreat me. We do not think that way. We know that. We hear it in the Bible. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. We all know those verses, and we say them out loud when we're around other Christians, but the moment we're mistreated, we are running behind closed doors and scattering around like rats and roaches, whispering lies and deception and gossip to other people about how we were mistreated. It's evil. It's wicked, and it's not like Christ, and it doesn't belong in the church at all, which is why church discipline exists. Because church discipline exists to remove the leaven from the lump. We cannot have gossip in this church. We cannot have that kind of relationship in this church. We cannot have grumbling, whining, and complaining, and gossiping, and then being mistreated and and, and firing back at those who mistreat you. We are to endure and absorb and take the loss. To take the loss in our victory. And that's what our freedom in Christ is for. That in the victory we have in Jesus Christ, we are free from sin and death. And in our freedom from sin, in the freedom we have to express righteousness, righteousness is best expressed, so this is the best use of our freedom, in enduring suffering. And if you're not suffering, and again, what is suffering? It shows up in a variety of ways. From little things to huge things and anywhere in between. If you're not suffering, then you're not sacrificing. And the Christian life is all about sacrifice. I'm not looking to encourage you to go find suffering that is never going to be my aim. I don't want you to suffer. I want you to sacrifice. But I know that you're going to suffer 
if you sacrifice. So what I do want to see is the result of your sacrifice, which will be suffering. And you know what I want to do when you suffer? I want to embrace you. I want to love you. I want to hold your hand. I want to be there with you. I want to pray with you. I want to comfort you. I want to be Christ to you. And we should all be like that to each other. And if I mistreat you, I want you to come to me and tell me that I mistreated you, but I want you to endure that mistreatment like Christ. And take the loss. That is the Christian life, to take the loss. And I could give you examples of Christians in this building, in this room right now that I have seen in the last month or two who have taken big losses for Christ. And they are the most maturing and fruitful, growing believers I have seen in this church. And it is a beauty. And I love them for it. Not because... They're great because Christ is clearly working them. Jesus looks so beautiful in their face. I love watching people do this. And then I look at them and I go, oh man, they are encouraging. I'm encouraging them to lose for Christ. And then I watch them obey Jesus and obey their pastor to be biblical. And then I sit there and I talk to Christian and I'm like, I'm not even doing that. Oh Lord, like we just... I, guys, I'm not saying you have to be perfect today, okay? This is a journey, trying to figure out and, and learn and grow and, and how we deal with being mistreated. But I'm telling you, our perspective has got to change. What about when I'm mistreated? And Paul goes on in verse 25. He says, don't worry. Because you're thinking to yourself, well, what about the people who are mistreating me? Paul answers it. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Like, don't worry about the person who mistreats you. That's not the point. I know you're looking at that person who mistreats you, you're going, they deserve justice. And God says in Romans 12, 19, vengeance is mine. I'll repay, says the Lord. You don't have to worry about it. In fact, in a couple of verses earlier there in Romans 12, 17, he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. So, don't worry about them, because Paul just told us in verse 25, God will take care of the wrongdoer. That's not your focus. All these verses on how you're supposed to deal with being mistreated, and you slide this tiny little verse in, like, oh, yeah, well, I'll take care of the people who are mistreating you. Don't worry about it. The point is, don't fix your eyes on the problem. Fix your eyes on the solution, Christ, and he'll take care of the problem. And then he goes on in verse 4, 1, chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. He's talking to believing masters. And what he's saying is, yeah, I'll throw in this, kind of saying, like, I'll throw in this verse here to make sure that masters are treating their slaves well. Like, it's important to me that believing masters treat their slaves well. But that's not the point. The point is, when the slave is mistreated, how will they respond? So all the believers are called to this kind of response. And the heart of Christ is to take loss. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when Paul's talking about um, uh, suing other believers he says instead of suing them what if you were defrauded instead what if you took the loss what if you instead of counter suing pay what you don't even think is owed but is owed what if you for the sake of christ 
lose. And why does that matter? Because Jesus says in Matthew 10, 39, whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Find it. That's why. That's why I will gladly lose in this life. That's why I will sacrifice to the point of suffering. That's why I will take the loss. That's why while I'm mistreated, I will absorb losing in this flesh. I will take the loss. I will take the suffering as I sacrifice for Christ. I will take it and I will take it and I will take it even if it means my death. I will lose unto death because Jesus promises me that if I do that in this flesh, I get life forever. That's the Christian living. That is how we look at mistreatment. Because that is what Jesus did. That is what he commands of us, so to be more like him. And our reward is an eternal joy without any conflict or mistreatment. Instead, it will be that which we're longing for. Glory and pleasure in God's presence. Let's pray. Lord, with great anticipation for what you have in front of us today and for the rest of this week, we look for opportunities to sacrifice for you. And in that sacrifice, as we get mistreated, I pray that you would give your people the heart and mind of your spirit, the heart and mind of Christ, to endure that mistreatment in your glory. And if it means suffering, Lord, then so be it. Because Romans 8.18 says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. We look forward to the hope that is before us. Let us live Christ-like lives. Lord, let us live Christ-like lives. Put our minds and our eyes and our ears in your word so we can know how you think and feel and believe so we can copy you, Jesus. Create in this body the mind of Christ day in and day out through your pastors, through your elders, through each other, through your servants, through one another as we all desire to submit and to sacrifice and to obey. And whatever may come in that, we know that you have endured much worse. And we have a high priestly king, you, Lord Jesus, who has endured it so that you may not only pay for our sins, but so that you may be a great shepherd of the sheep, a comforter in time of need, a good God, a gracious Lord, a loving Father, a king of peace, who can be our peace and our comfort and our joy in the midst of that suffering that we have to pay in living for you. It's not an easy life. And we have never been taught in our culture that life should be hard. But your word teaches us that it will be and that it's worth it. Change the way we think. Encourage our hearts that the blessing of this is joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.